I, it's been over a year since I stood and preached and eventually was celebrate in the Anglican church. So forgive me if I'm a little bit uh, rusty. I was, I was curious. Um, and so I, I, I found myself on Zillow a couple of days ago, and I wanted to look up the house where I spent my senior year in high school. And so I got the address from my mom, and I Googled it to see like what its current value was. And it was last sold in um, 2013 for $14,000. And it made me think of back when I thought we were rich. And so I said, let me Google our rich house. That house had 900 square feet. There was five of us. The rich house was 1,200 square feet. You can currently get that house for $26,000 if you have the money lying around somewhere. I remember um, I had a dream, though, or means of escaping the poverty that marked my years as a kid. I knew that one day um, I could make a better life for myself, and I would do it by playing football. So from the age of six, um, I played and I practiced, and during those hot Alabama summers, I would work out and train, and by the time I got to my junior year, I was pretty good. I was one of the better players in the city, and if I could say honestly, maybe one of the better players in the state, but that's up for debate. But by that time, I had some sc college scholarship offers um, from major schools who were going to allow me to go to college as a football player. We were the number two team in the state, and we were in the playoffs, and it was a few minutes before halftime. I'll never forget this. My coach took me out of the game. And then on the last play before half, he was worried about them throwing a, a touchdown pass, so he put me back in the game. And the quarterback rolls out to um, my right, your left, and I roll out with them, and we, we lock eyes. And so I start chasing him, and I'm going to hit the quarterback, get a sack to end the half. But the quarterback thought the better of it, and he slid right when he got to me. Unbeknownst to that, my best, one of my best friends was chasing him. And he dove to hit the quarterback, and the quarterback slid. And he flew over the quarterback, hit me in my knee, and tore three ligaments. And I remember after getting the diagnosis from my doctor, I got the doc we won the game, and there was another game the next week. At that time, like all of the college scouts were there because we were a really good team. So all of these scouts who were recruiting me saw me injured in that moment. And I remember saying some prayers that I was a Christian. And I said, God, I've read all of these stories about people in the Bible being healed. If they have faith, my whole future depends on me being able to play football. So they had me, like, all, you know, taped up. I said, I'm going to stand as an act of faith. I'm going to walk out, and I'm going to play next week. So I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed. And I stood up, and no miracle happened, and I fell on the floor. And for a long time after that, if you had asked me, I would have said that was a tragedy. The day that the dreams and the plans that I had for myself were gone and destroyed forever. But you live long enough, you have the opportunity to rethink your past. That tragedy, when I tore the ligaments in my knee, meant that I did not get a college scholarship to go and play football at a major school. Instead, I ended up at a small school called Swanee where I met my wife. And I ran into the Anglican tradition. So were it not for that quarterback 20-something years ago, I would not be standing here today. 
time gives you space and distance to reconsider your past, to think about what you once were, what God demands of you, and what God is doing in your life at any given moment. And believe it or not, a lot of Ephesians is about the reconsideration of your past. As a matter of fact, y'all didn't ask me to come and preach about chapter one, but I'm going to give you a little bit of a background in chapter one, or at least one way of thinking about it. Let's say you are a new convert to Christianity, and you're a Gentile. And you feel like I'm the B team. You know, like God had a plan with the Jewish people, and they rejected the Messiah, so maybe now God has taken me. I like to tell people, if you ever want to ask a girl to the prom, I, I used to give this, you know, advice. Don't say, I asked another girl, she turned me down, you were the second best option, right? <laughs> no, you want to say, no, no, from the moment I saw you, I knew you were the one. So the, so the Gentiles might have wondered, are we God's B team? The people who just engrafted when things seem to have gone awry. And so in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul re-narrates all of human history. The inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God is not a plan B, but it's a predestined before God created the world. You were God's plan. And so he tells this big story of the cosmic re-narration. You need to understand human history differently, climaxing in your participation in God's people. But after that, after he does this cosmic redefinition, he begins with something very, very personal. And if it's okay, I'm going to read verses 1 to 3 again, where Paul once again re-narrates their past. Y'all, if you have it, you can turn to it. I'm not exactly sure what version of the Bible y'all are reading, but I'm doing NIV, okay? This is what Paul says in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. As for you, he's talking to the Gentiles, after this cosmic re-narration, You were dead dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world in the rule of the kingdom of the air. The spirit is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived amongst them at one time, gratifying the desires of the flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest of us, we were by nature observing or deserving wrath. Now, if you're a Christian, you like to talk about this God. Have you ever heard this? I don't know why this has bothered me. This God-shaped hole. Have you ever heard about this thing before? This sense that we walk around with this sense of inadequacy. And we say, somebody please, who will save me from this body of death? And then God comes in and he goes, yes, this is it. Let me tell you something. I never experienced a God-shaped hole. I was, I, I don't know, maybe I'll put it this way. If sinning wasn't pleasurable, nobody would do it. Right? <laughs> We sin because part of us enjoys it. And nobody is walking around at the time saying, I am following the desires of my flesh by nature a child of wrath, and that I am a part of the sons of disobedience. The Gentiles did not think of themselves that way before they became Christian. And if you're honest with ourselves, all sin, right, that Paul is trying to get to, Paul is trying to get them to rethink their past. In other words, he's describing their life in sin other than they experienced it. And all sin, this is what I want you to understand, all sin involves a form of misremembering, right? So remember you have this thing, you say, I'm never going to do it again. That feeling right after you sin, I'm I'm done with this. But then after a while, you kind of go, was that really a sin? Was that really bad? 
So what you do is you retell the story of how you felt and what you did. I don't know about you. This is what we what are we, are we in. Uh, what month is this? August. I'm still thinking about like some of my New Year's resolutions. I'm still I'm going to start some of those ones that I planned back in in January. I'm still saying to myself, there's time. So all sin, all sin involves a misremembering, a reinterpretation of the harm that our sins does to ourselves and others. So no one, I would, I would suggest then, lies to us more consistently than we lie to ourselves. As a matter of fact, if your friend lied to you as much as you lie to yourself, you'd end the relationship. <laughs> so Paul begins this section of Ephesians by re-describing their life before they became a Christian. And he has to re-narrate their past so they can understand their present and their future. Because if you don't understand your past is genuinely sinful, you're going to return to it. So Paul has to explain to them how their past was actually bad so they can live in the present and point towards the future. Now, my Calvinist friends, and I have any Calvinists in here? No shade to the Calvinists, okay? My Calvinist friends love this part. I teach at Wheaton College, and I, I talk about how in every part of the class is one group of students who get excited. So when my Pentecostals get excited when we preach about Acts, you know, my spiritual people get excited when I talk about John, my Calvinists get excited when we come to Ephesians chapter 2, this is their part. Because Paul says this very clearly, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. In other words, you weren't just like, you know the, the, the analogy of you're drowning in the water and then, the, no, 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 you're dead. There is no like you're drowning, no, you are dead in your sins. And then God reaches in and saves you by his sovereign act. There's nothing involved with you. This is about God's sovereignty calling dead people to life. I said, you're right, Calvinist. I agree. But listen to the other part about this. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live. The actual language there is to walk. I call it the walking dead or the zombie theology. <laughs> Paul says that you're dead but you're walking around living. And you're defined by your desires. Anyone who's ever seen a zombie movie, the only thing the zombie thinks of is I want to eat and kill, right? And so it's alive, but it's alive only in the sense that it's driven by its passions. And so Paul articulates their life before they became a Christian as some kind of walking dead where you're alive, you're living, you're consciously making decisions, but you're not in some sense free. Then he talks about that you're following the rulers of this age. What he's trying to articulate here is that the entire world is in some sense in rebellion against God. And then he says the desires of the flesh. And so I think you all can see this triumvirate that I talk about a lot. There's three things that Paul articulates here. You're, you're trapped in your desires. Why do you sin? Part of the reason that you sin is because you want to do it. You see it and you take it. Your desires are leading you to sin. But then he says, you're also following the course of this world. There are some times in which society leads you to sin. If it, wasn't for, if it wasn't normative for the culture, you wouldn't do it. I know it's really bad to talk about um, your children, so I won't say, point out which kid it is. But the same, the same basic argument that we have with our children is the following. Everybody else is doing it. So the norm that they establish is what I see around me. And I want to say, well, according to the Bible, the world's under the thrall of the devil, right? <laughs> so if the world is doing it, you shouldn't follow it. So why do you sin? 
You sin, and sometimes because your friends, your neighbors make you do it. Something that you would never consider, you would never consider unless you had a friend who was with you who says, we should go for it. Do not do this, teenagers, okay? This is really dumb, okay? When I was in high school, we had a game. Do not do this. I probably shouldn't tell you this. They're all going to do this. I'm not responsible parents, okay? Where we would be driving, and someone would, like, put their hands over your face from the back seat. I know. I know this is stupid. I didn't say it. I was a teenager. And the idea is who could go the farthest before you said, okay, stop, and they take the hand off your face. That was really dumb. But do you know why we did it? Because we were together. And we were afraid to be the one who was a coward. Why do you sin? You sin because the world leads you to sin. Why do you sin? You sin because your desires lead you to sin. Why do you sin? Paul talks about the spiritual, the ruler of the forces of the air. It's a spiritual power. So Paul is saying to them, throughout the course of your life, you thought that you were free. You thought that you were alive. You thought that you were making decisions. But in reality, you had a myriad of influences leading you down a certain direction. And then he calls this group of people who are doing these things the children of the sons of disobedience. He calls them a family. A family. So in other words, there's a community of dysfunctional people sitting together. Right? Have you ever had this relationship with someone who you're a friend with, and you have no idea why you're still friends, but you have this dysfunctional, broken relationship that you can't continue on year after year, month after month, day after day? This is what Paul is talking about. You were a part of the sons of disobedience. You were part of a family. Now, what I want you to understand here, then, is that Paul is giving a, a comprehensive analysis of the entire human condition that we are an unstable family, at war with itself. Why are we at war with ourselves? Because our father, the father of lies, Satan, does not want harmony but destruction. You're under the rule and authority of someone who does not love you. So I want to reconsider something I said at the beginning. I think that what the God-shaped whole people are trying to get at is during our time apart from God, we were not happy even if we didn't know it. There's a sense of that, right? There's a sense in which we look at secular society apart from God and we see that we're fundamentally not happy, right? We have, you have a rapid secularization of the United States. A third of, the, of people have not come back to church post-pandemic. And you would think that the abandonment of God would lead to this fresh outbreak of harmony on social media, right? <laughs> free, of the, free of the constraints and the strictures of religion, we would just get along and love one another. But what you see is we are deeply, deeply unhappy and broken and miserable people. All you have to do is, and, and I want to just go and, and listen to five interviews, five, pick any five of celebrities. One of them will say, at my highest point, when I was achieving all of my success, I was deeply, deeply satisfied, dissatisfied. So I do think then that even if we can't articulate what this thing is, there is an unhappiness that we experience in a life apart from God. But here's the, tr here's the truth, though. 
those unstable communities marked by trauma and sometimes disdain for others aren't just secular communities. To be honest, Christians could be like that too, right? You can find yourself in a Christian community that has all the marks of being under the rule of the authority of the prince of the air. Because try as we might, the church is itself caught up in this same world, right? One of the most difficult things for me to do as a Christian is to surround myself with people who truly want to follow Jesus. To find a different family who's going to point me in the proper direction. So Paul has given this extensive, but don't worry, I won't take as much in the last six verses. But Paul has given this extensive discussion of the human experience in verses 1 to 3. But the gospel is always in the conjunctions. In verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in his mercy, made us alive with Christ when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Every Christian story, every Christian story, in fact, the human story has a certain narrative shape. It doesn't have to be spectacular. It doesn't mean that, I remember when I was growing up because my mom raised me in a church and I didn't do all of the crazy stuff. Maybe y'all think I did do crazy stuff, but relatively speaking, it was tame. <laughs> I was like, wow, I wish I had a, a, tr- a Christian story where I was like hooked on drugs and shooting people and then God brought me back in and that sounds like a real conversion. It, that is, that, that's not what he's talking about. It doesn't mean that every Christian conversion is spectacular in that regard. But everybody at some point who follows Jesus gets to this point where they say, it is God who is rich in his mercy, who intervened when I was under the thrall of the rulers of the prince of the air. And some of you may say, well, this doesn't even apply to me because I was raised in the church. Well, hold on then. How did you get here? If you were blessed to have parents who were converted before you were born and who brought you into the family of God from the beginning, that is no less miraculous because God's work in them. And trust me, three or four generations of Christians is itself a miracle. Everybody has a testimony. In other words, our families or you were heading in one direction, but God came for us. The, the Bible describes God as being wealthy in mercy and unlimited supply God's mercy in other words God's mercy on me has no impact on God's ability to have mercy on you I'll never forget when I was in that same school I had this orange sweater that I used to wear we had orange and blue um, uniforms in middle school for football and my orange sweater was my favorite sweater this cool kid asked me if he could borrow my orange sweater and he borrowed it and he didn't give it back to me and I was really mad about it So he went to my church, so I told the deacon. (laughs) And the deacon comes over, comes over to him and says, you know, did you steal it? He goes, yes. But then he says to me, Esau, you should forgive him. I was like, I don't want to forgive him. (laughs) I want justice. In other words, I felt like there was only enough love for God to show love to me by getting my sweater back. The idea that I could then give some of that love and mercy to him by reconciling and being a part of God's family? No. Because I have a limited amount of grace and mercy. My kids probably know that. When it's over, it's over. (laughs) But the Bible says God doesn't run out. He's wealthy in mercy. And if we had time, we would talk about how this language of God who's being rich in his mercy is actually an allusion to Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, 
when Israel finds themselves in deep, deep trouble with God. Remember, they, they had the idols, and they're about to be destroyed, and, 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 and Moses says, show me your glory. And he goes, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, abounding in mercy and forgiving sins. In other words, Israel encountering both God's judgment and his mercy at the exact same time. And now, as Paul is re-narrating their past, he is saying, at the very moment you find yourself like Israel, under the authority of idols, God intervenes with this mercy. We become Israel, encountering judgment and grace at the same time. Anyone who's heard the gospel have felt this, right? You're sitting in the church, you get this fear, oh my goodness, it's actually true. I'm a sinner, but God loves me. Where does abundance of mercy come from? It's love. It's just who he is. What does he do? He makes us alive with Christ. I, I want to I move on. I don't want to take up too much time, but I got a few more things. This happens if you let me preach for a year, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Normally, when Paul talks about the move from death to life, he used the language of baptism. You know, you died to your sins and you're raised to newness of life in places like Romans chapter 6. You died and you came alive. He does something different than in Ephesians. He doesn't say you died and then you came to life. He said you, you were dead and you were made alive and you were not just raised from the dead. You were ascended and placed on high with Jesus. Why does that matter? Have you ever been sitting there and you're starting to get worried about what's going on? Or you see things going on, the pandemic, monkeypox, um, Ukraine, or maybe your own personal trauma. You have no idea how you're going to pay your bills. Your kids are, are worrying you half to death. Or your kids are nothing but sources of unending joy. Whatever it is. Right? I, that was for my daughter. <laughs> she was traumatized for a second. In, a, in other words, we see our lives day by day by day by day. And our hope rises and falls in the moment. We see the attendance in church drop and we get afraid. What I want you to understand is that God isn't sitting up in heaven and going, you know what? That argument that proves that I don't exist, that's a really good one. We should have a meeting about that. Did you read that book? David Bentley I wrote it. We should do something, right? No, he's fine. He is unconcerned about anybody who threatens his sovereignty. He is in control. And Paul is saying when you become a Christian, you're not just made alive. You get Christ's perspective. So we're not terrified by the various things that occur in our lives. We remember that he is sovereign. And we only struggle, we only struggle when we take our, ourselves away from the right hand of the Father and we come down here and we look around. So Paul says that you, as a result of going from being dead to alive, you now have Christ's perspective. And let me tell you how the story ends. God is all in all and he got to from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's how the story ends. Whatever happens in the middle, we know where it's going. The question you might have, and I'll sit down with this, is why would God do any of this? Paul has now retold their story in which they've gone from being sinners who were trapped under the authority of the rulers of the air to being seated with God as a result of his mercy, looking over the world from the perspective of the reigning and risen Lord. Why? But Paul talks about it. And there's two options for interpreting it. And I don't know which one I like, so you get to pick, right? <laughs> he says, so that in the coming age, the riches of God's glory might be manifested to the coming age. There's two ways of talking about this, and both of them I like. One of them is for the coming age, meaning the eschaton, 
That means when we all get to heaven, we're going to gather around Christians from all of the different generations, and we're going to stand here, and we're going to tell the story. In the year of our Lord, 2020 or 2022, this is our testimony. So our life right now, that we're living as Christians, is a testimony to what God was doing in our generation we enter the kingdom of God. In the picture of that, you have Christians from like the 400s, the 700s, the, you know, 1,000, you know, whatever. We're all together. We're telling the story of what God has done. That's version one. The other one, what I like a little bit better, the Greek works either way, so I'm going to just choose the one that I like that preaches a little bit better. Okay, <laughs> this is the other one. The other one is that what we're doing, and the NIV goes in this when it says coming ages. What we're doing now as Christians is the testimony for the next generation of Christians that follows us. In other words, I think all of us who live as Christians sometimes look around and we see the church and it's compromised in a thousand different directions and we just want to give up. But then we look back and we say, you know what? When the church last lost its mind at the Reformation, there was somebody who God raised up. And if you go back behind that, you can find somebody in the, in other words, no matter what is happening in the wider church, there's always someone who's giving a testimony to what God is doing. So maybe, maybe 50 years from now or 75 years from now, when they say, when it seems as if the church had lost its mind, had fallen victim to every single evil and act of wickedness that was in the society, invaded the church, there's a group of Christians who in our day Testify to the goodness of God. People always ask me a lot why I write. And to be honest, part of it is I write for my children. I know that one day my kids are going to fully understand what was happening during their childhood. And they're going to wonder, Dad, what did you do? And what I want to be able to say to them is this is my literary deposit. I didn't do everything. I wasn't perfect, but this is what I can do. Paul says that the coming ages, the believer and the non-believer, are going to look at the church, this ragtag group of Christians, and say, you know what? God was wise in doing it this way. That's, what I think, the best we can ask for for our lives, whether that is a testimony to the next generation of believers or that is a testimony we take into the kingdom of God. In other words, our little acts of faithfulness are an eternal witness to God's wisdom in calling us into his family. What are you doing with your life? You are displaying through the way that you live the wisdom of God in saving you through his son, Jesus Christ. So I'm almost done. To follow Jesus then, to follow Jesus means to tell a different story of your past. To become a Christian is to re-narrate your past before you found Jesus and recognize that past was inadequate. It means leaving the broken and dysfunctional family where they did not genuinely love you and to finding a new family, the church, that hopefully is more healthy and life-giving. It means from that reality, imagining a different future for your family and for yourself, that you will live in a way that glorifies God so that when you breathe your last and people ask what the collective testimony of your actions were, they will say through the glory of your life, 
wise and good and calling us into his family through Jesus. Amen.